Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. FBI agents arrest one of the Republican candidates running for Michigan governor. They say he was involved in the January 6th Capitol breach. More updates on the fatal shooting of Patrick Leoya in April. A prosecutor is charging the Michigan police officer with second-degree murder. After one year of investigations into the January 6th Capitol breach, the House Select Committee tonight has prepared a public hearing. Republicans are calling it a political stunt timed just before the midterm elections. New evidence released of arson in Wyoming. Police are asking for help finding a suspect who set an abortion clinic on fire last month. After the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, a debate is heating up on how to keep America's school children safe. NTD speaks with a public safety advisor to see what security strategies may be best. The FBI today arrested a Michigan Republican gubernatorial candidate and raided his home. They say this is because of his involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach. Here are the details. The Detroit FBI field office said agents entered the home of Michigan Republican gubernatorial candidate Ryan Kelly in Allendale Township Thursday morning and took him away. The FBI said that the agents had both a search warrant and an arrest warrant. <laughs> Kelly appeared in a federal court in Grand Rapids, Michigan later that day and was released. According to a criminal complaint filed in a federal court in Washington, Kelly faces four misdemeanor charges related to the January 6th Capitol breach. They include knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds, disorderly and disruptive conduct, and engaging in any act of physical violence. The court files allege that on January 6, 2021, Kelly assisted others who were tearing down barricades and encouraged the crowd to enter the Capitol building. Video footage appears to show him on Capitol grounds. Come on, let's go. Kelly has previously denied entering the Capitol on that day. Kelly is one of five Republican candidates in the Michigan gubernatorial race. The primary is scheduled for August 2nd, and the winner will challenge incumbent Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer in the November midterms. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And staying in Michigan, a prosecutor has decided to charge a Grand Rapids police officer with second-degree murder for shooting and killing Patrick Leoya in April. I made the decision to charge Christopher Schur with one count of second-degree murder. Uh, second-degree murder is a felony offense. It is punishable by up to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Um, the shooting took place following a chaotic traffic stop on April 4th. The officer, Christopher Schur, told 26-year-old Patrick Leoya that he stopped his car because the license plate didn't match the vehicle. Roughly a minute into the stop, Leoya began to run after the officer asked him to produce a driver's license. The officer caught him quickly and the two struggled across a front lawn. The officer demanded that Leoya let go of his taser before he fired the fatal shot. A bystander recorded the shooting on cell phone video. Leoya was on the ground when he was killed. And in the House tonight, a select committee is unveiling their interpretation of the January 6th Capitol breach. It's the first of several hearings. Meanwhile, Republicans are trying to make a case that this is more about politics rather than protecting democracy. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more. Tonight on Capitol Hill, a committee made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans is eager to make public their findings. About what happened January 6th, 
and what led up to it. They've spent one year investigating the January 6th Capitol breach, and after interviewing more than 1,000 people, including family and friends of the former president, and collecting around 140,000 documents, the lawmakers say they're ready to reveal the facts. Uh, and allow people um, to, to ask that question uh, and to form their own opinions. But Republicans say this is not about fact-finding, but rather making a political display. Pointing out that the Democrat-led committee picked a controversial former ABC News executive to put together the presentation. I'm not sure if they're using taxpayer money to hire a former ABC executive who took his time to withhold information about Epstein. A top Democrat on the committee, Jamie Raskin, says they're ready to make the case for why they say it was a pre-planned attack. Uh, the idea that all of this was just uh, a rowdy demonstration that um, spontaneously got a little bit out of control is absurd. Raskin says tonight's hearing is different than the House's impeachment of the former president because they aren't looking at just one crime, but multiple crimes and the mobilization of extremist groups, a focus that Republicans say was off track from the very beginning. Why didn't the Capitol Police's intelligence unit raise the alarm about potential violence when they had intelligence going back weeks before January 6th that told them that something was going to happen? The Department of Justice has arrested more than 800 people accused of being involved in the chaos. Republicans are now trying to counter the narrative by calling this primetime hearing a distraction from other, more pressing issues. Is Nancy Pelosi going to hold a primetime hearing on inflation? And another concern that Republicans continue to bring up is that they say this January 6th select committee does not address the root of the issue, which is why there was not sufficient security on the day of the attack. Congressman Jim Banks is right now putting together a report that addresses that very question, and he says that report will be available to the public in a few weeks. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And in Casper, Wyoming, police have released video footage of an abortion clinic that was set on fire last month. They are asking the public to help identify the suspect. The incident took place on May 25th around 3.30 a.m. The clinic, called Wellspring Health Access, was scheduled to open later this month. It is reportedly the only abortion clinic of its kind in Wyoming. Because of the fire, the clinic says it will delay its opening by several more weeks. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives is offering a $5,000 reward for anyone who provides information leading to an arrest of the suspect. Authorities say the suspect appeared to be a white female and acted alone. Multiple pro-life pregnancy centers across the nation have also reported similar attacks since the Supreme Court's draft opinion on Roe v. Wade was leaked. There are many dangers that students may face. Some seen, some unseen, and some seen only later in life, when the protracted effect is much more difficult to remedy. How well can your child read? And how well could they read if given the right opportunities? A slew of new studies shows a third of children in the youngest grades can't read as well as they should. And yes, that's up since the pandemic. But long before we all got locked down, our children were being locked out of a proper education. Or so some say. Advocates of the science of reading say the way our kids are taught is putting them at a disadvantage. So what's the solution? 
New York City's dyslexic mayor, Eric Adams, made educational reform a big part of his mandate and recently announced that elementary schools would teach a phonics-based curriculum. Phonics is an integral part of the science of reading, and Adams is hoping it can improve the literacy and lives of the children in the nation's largest school system. It breaks learning down, teaching individual letters first, then clusters of letters, followed by whole words, and ultimately sentences and full texts. While a more common approach asks children to learn entire words based on context and pictures. Earlier today, I spoke with Kareem Weaver. He's a co-founder of the literacy nonprofit Fulcrum and a member of the Oakland NAACP Education Committee. He says full literacy is not only possible, it's a fundamental civil right, a powerful protection from the school-to-prison pipeline, and the cornerstone for a life of choice and fulfillment. Kareem, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And while pandemic lockdowns have certainly impacted learning for kids, literacy levels have been a problem in the U.S. for years. In your view, why is that? Oh. First of all, kids haven't been reading for a long time, and, and it's it's because they haven't been taught. And that's the bottom line of it. Um, there's no one uh, cause, but it, but in general, they haven't been taught to read. If they're taught to read, they will learn to read. And the field has kind of ignored the research and went with trends and fads, and and we really never did the things that we were supposed to do. And instead, we leveraged other methods and, and other theories about how, but we never looked at the research and applied it. And that's the, that's the bottom line. Many kids in New York have not got the liter literacy outcomes that they should have. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, what we've seen is that Eric Adams, the mayor, is trying to make some changes. Do you think what he's doing is enough with the latest mandate start. on phonics-based literacy? Uh, so I think it's a start. I think Mayor Adams is off to a good start. It's not enough. I mean, there are some things that he's got to he's got to wrestle with. It's not just phonics, but at the core of it, I think he sounded the alarm that we've got to teach foundational reading skills and not just assume that it's going to happen, you know, happenstance or opportunistically. No, all kids need to learn how to read. I was wondering if you could give some specific examples about this methodology. Well. Let me just start by saying this isn't anything new. Um, the, the, the term science of reading has been popularized, but let me just be very, very clear. It just means taking these essential components and being very systematic and direct in how you teach them. That's it, okay, that's it. They need to understand phonemic awareness and phonics and fluency and vocabulary and comprehension and develop their oral language and develop their writing. All of those things bundled together, done in a systematic way. You gotta have instructional materials aligned in the research. You gotta have appropriate reading assessments. You need um, timely intervention instead of this wait to fail. You gotta screen for dyslexia upfront or risk of it. You have to make sure that intervention is timely and not just two and three years after the kids behind grade level. And then you need good professional development. You have to have training. So it sounds like there's plenty that schools can do. What can parents uh, do? So I would say this. The first thing parents have to do is step back and realize that their children are okay. Your children are not defective. We have gotten those messages. We have, 
we have been told the reason they can't read is because they're too poor, too bad, they can't sit still, they're too dark, they speak too many languages, you name it. And sadly, many of us have bought into that. We got to let that go. We, we got to get rid of it. Our kids can learn if they're taught. So the, what, what parents can do is we can make sure that the one, that the school is actually teaching according to the science of reading. Secondly is, and I put myself out there for this, many of us um, have not gotten our children an educational test. There's a lot of issues around that. There's a stigma around that. We don't want our children to be over-identified to go to special ed, but I got news for you. Schools have not been testing regularly. They don't want to find out if a child has dyslexia, by and large, because that means they have to do something with it and it can be expensive. This is one of those few things that as a parent, you say, you know what? Maybe I will get that extra job, but temporarily if I have to, because my child needs to be educationally tested and them telling me my child is slow or just needs to wait or all that, that's not good enough. I know my child is capable. These kids can learn to read. And so we got to figure out what's really going on. Kareem Weaver from Fulcrum, Oakland. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And staying with schools, after the shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, heated debates have begun on how to keep America's school children safe. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a public safety advisor to see what security strategies may be best for schools. It automatically rolls the cameras and then tells police with they're alerted within 60 seconds. Jim Fuda is a public safety advisor, and he also worked over 33 years in law enforcement. After the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Fuda said he sent a letter to almost all U.S. senators advising them on how to help prevent another school shooting. One thing he recommended is installing a wireless emergency management system by Safeguard OES. They provide cameras in schools with links to the police department, links to the teacher through an app on their phone, and you can pinpoint an active shooter in a building to three square feet geocode him down to the room. Uh, it, it's a no-brainer, and it's not expensive. Although some have advocated for having a single entrance and exit point to help prevent an active shooter, Fuda doesn't think that's a good idea. I, I have an issue with, with, with securing and having one exit and entry point, only because that's just for an active shooter. Although um, rare, when they happen, they're catastrophic. But if you have a fire, you have any situation, people have to be able to exit the building. I'm more in favor of one entrance point, but the doors on the outside are locked, but people can exit from those doors. Kind of like at a movie theater or wherever it might be, you know, an alarm sounds if that door opens or, you know, something like that. But Then I asked him what he thinks about arming teachers. I, I, I don't think um, arming a teacher is a, is a good idea. I, I, uh, I think the mindset uh, of the teacher is different than a police officer. Um, uh, well, you have to consider what the training is going to be. And do you want Mrs. McGillicuddy, the third grade teacher, walking around with a 45 strap to her hip? I, I don't, I, I, I just don't see it. And, and you, you're going to find too in some of these shooter situations that, that the, that the a actual shooter is, a, is an old student or, or even a current student. Um, so how is that interaction going to go to, you know, to a, a, a eliminate a threat? I, I'm just not in favor of, of, of arming, arming teachers. 
Would a teacher think twice before shooting and killing his or her own student if the student was the active shooter? Fuda thinks there's a better option than arming teachers. Yeah, I, I, I've always felt that the school resource officer was the way to go. Professionally trained, <clears throat> knows what they're doing, and, um, um, and we should all, all have one is, is even a, a mentor on the, uh, in, in each one of the schools. Meanwhile, in Texas, the owner of Schools on Target, a company that trains teachers to carry firearms in schools, spoke with the Epic Times. He said since the Uvalde shooting, he has added nine additional classes, which is double the amount he would usually have in June and August. Jason Perry, NTD News. Interesting propositions. Coming up, New York Governor Kathy Hochul has taken a tough stance on gun control by signing a flurry of bills. But one bill may raise First Amendment concerns. And two Atlanta-based reality TV stars have been found guilty of fraud and tax evasion. They, along with their accountant, were convicted of conspiring to defraud the United States, along with other financial crimes. That and more here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. In response to the recent mass shooting in Buffalo, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a number of bills with the goal of preventing these kinds of incidents in the future. One bill requires social media platforms to report hateful conduct on their platforms. An expert says the new law could raise First Amendment concerns. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. And in the state of New York, we're now requiring social media networks to monitor and report hateful conduct on their platforms. Thank New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a new bill targeting conduct on social media by requiring companies to report hateful conduct. Roy Gutterman, director of the Tully Center for Free Speech, said the new law could raise First Amendment concerns. Anytime we have a law that empowers the government to regulate or even punish some type of speech, there's, there are going to be First Amendment implications uh, right off the bat. And this law as a monitoring device certainly could raise First Amendment concerns, even though the text says it doesn't. He said the concept of hate speech is tough to defend and also difficult to define. The new law specifically requires social media networks to provide and maintain mechanisms for reporting hateful conduct on their platform. Attorney General Letitia James said networks must comply if they want to operate in New York. Gutterman said he's not sure how the reporting would work. Assigning an affirmative duty uh, for a, a, a platform to make a, a qualitative decision on what could constitute this so-called hateful speech uh, is just a vague standard that I don't think could uh, withstand the First Amendment. Hochul also announced the establishment of a task force on social media and violent extremism to investigate the role of social media in promoting domestic terror. 
Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in San Francisco, no matter what policies have been proposed so far, the homeless population continues increasing. Now officials are planning to offer housing to every homeless person in the city. Critics have warned that the plan won't address fundamental issues. During a city council meeting on Tuesday, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to create an ordinance that would house every homeless person in the city permanently. It's called the Place for All program. This is a modest step. It's a policy. I do think it is a bit of a change in policy from what the city has been saying, and I think it does require some analysis over the next six months of what it would take to actually move towards shelter for all. They will be working with the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, or HSH. According to Emily Cohen, Deputy Director for Communications for the HSH, in the past, they worked on balancing between intervention and prevention, as well as shelter and permanent housing. This ordinance would explicitly call on us to determine how many additional shelter beds we would need to offer a shelter bed to everyone experiencing unsheltered homelessness in San Francisco. Although they all voted in favor of the ordinance, council members pointed out that it would not do much if there isn't a plan to locate spaces to fund temporary residents for the homeless. But critics like Michael Schellenberger, author of San Francisco, said at a meeting on May 27th that public space has become unusable. We now see that the whole area has been destroyed as a public commons. This is in a city that has long valued its role as providing livable, walkable public spaces for its residents. Schellenberger pointed out that many of the homeless are drug addicts that go to the city to indulge in their addiction at supervised drug consumption sites rather than solve it. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. Progressive San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin was just ousted after a recall vote. And in Los Angeles County, embattled District Attorney George Gascon is also facing a recall vote due to his soft-on-crime policies. But there's more to the story. NTD's Arlene Richards spoke in-depth with Charles Stinson, a former San Diego prosecutor who has been tracking and reporting on a trend of prosecutors across the country who he says are making cities less safe by sabotaging the rule of law. The voters of Los Angeles County voted him into office as the top law enforcement person in the county, uh, and those same voters now uh, are trying to recall him. That's Charles Stimson, a former San Diego district attorney and a senior fellow at the Edward Meese Legal Center. And he's talking about George Gascon, the current Los Angeles district attorney who is facing a recall vote. These pro-criminal anti-victim policies by Gascon and Boudin and elsewhere are having the inner city residents up in arms and saying, you know what, we, we didn't vote for that. Gascon's office said in an email that they had no comment, but there's more to the story. Stimson co-authored a report with Zach Smith called Progressive Prosecutors Sabotage Rule of Law, Raise Crime Rates, and Ignore Victims. He says there's a trend of prosecutors creating policies that are lenient on criminals and that it's a coordinated effort backed by billionaire George Soros. Stimson cited the Wall Street Journal, which said that during the 2016 election cycle, Soros contributed at least $3.8 million to political action committees supporting candidates for district attorney in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, New Mexico, Texas, and Wisconsin. 
and he added that this was just a fraction of the money Soros poured into county prosecutor races. The strategy, Stimson said, was to get rid of law and order DAs that didn't toe the line. And so what they did is they looked around at the big city uh, DA offices. They looked, and they were all Democrats, and they looked for um, which one didn't bend a knee to Black Lives Matter and wasn't prosecuting police to the way they wanted police prosecuted. NTD reached out to George Soros for comment, but we did not hear back before broadcast time. However, Stimson's report also cites a law journal symposium in February 2020, where Baltimore prosecutor Marilyn Mosby defined a progressive prosecutor as one who was advocating for social reform and moving away from the tough-on-crime approach because previous practices led to mass incarceration and overcriminalization of black and brown people. Stimson says the movement falsely believes the entire criminal justice system is racist and needs to be dismantled. He said crime is rising in rogue prosecutor states. Crime has exploded in Philadelphia, and crime has been at or on a decline in San Diego all these years. One takes a law and order approach, one takes a pro-criminal approach. According to Philadelphia police statistics, homicides rose from 277 in 2016 to 562 in 2021. And San Diego crime statistics show 50 homicides in 2016 and 56 in 2020. Stimson and Smith are planning to write a book about this movement, which Stimson says actually started in 2013. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And staying in California, two reality television stars were recently found guilty of fraud and tax evasion. They were caught when trying to buy property in Southern California. Let's take a look at the details. Todd and Julie Chrisley, stars of the reality television show Chrisley Knows Best, were found guilty of bank fraud and tax evasion on Tuesday in Atlanta, Georgia. Prosecutors alleged that the Chrisleys submitted fake documents to banks when applying for loans. They said Julie Chrisley also submitted a false credit report and fake bank statements when trying to rent a house in California. The Chrisleys were initially indicted in August 2019. A new indictment was filed in February of this year. A jury on Tuesday found them guilty of conspiring to defraud community banks with over $30 million in fraudulent loans, conspiring to defraud the IRS, tax evasion, wire fraud, and obstruction of justice. Despite the ruling, other family members have resigned contracts for spinoff shows based in Los Angeles. The U.S. Attorney General's office in Atlanta said Peter Tarantino, an accountant hired by the couple, was also found guilty of conspiring to defraud the United States and willfully filing false tax returns. All three remain free on bond. Sentencing for all three is set for October 6th. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a man who used to be a drug dealer transforms his life and becomes a master falconer. It all started 30 years ago with an environmental conservation project in Washington, D.C. And in the NHL tonight, a pivotal game five as the Rangers look to put the two-time defending champions on the ropes. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down what's at stake. That and more coming up.
A man who was once a drug dealer on the streets of Washington, D.C., has transformed his life and become a master falconer. And he thanks the healing power of wildlife. Let's take a look. In his 20s, Rondi Stotts was a drug dealer living in one of D.C.'s roughest neighborhoods. Now the 51-year-old has earned the designation of Master Falconer, and the transformation all started with an environmental conservation project in 1992. You hear all this in the background, in the back of your head, and, and all these animal noises that you know you got to take care of, so you can't go out here and do the stupid stuff that you were going to go do, because that's your responsibility. Hollywood filmmaker and conservationist Bob Nixon led the initiative to clean up the heavily polluted Anacostia River and hired nine young people from a nearby public housing community to help him, including Stotts. Uh, so it's been a great lesson for a lot of people that, you know, how the, the talent and dedication that these young men and women from Rodney's Corps on these 30 years has been quite astonishing. They've really inspired the movement that has restored the Anacostia River. For the next several years, Stotts helped clear out trash and restore bird populations. Over time, Stotts found himself drawn more toward nurturing birds than dealing drugs. In 2002, he decided to give up selling drugs for good. Here's his advice. I tell people, go to a creek and just sit and listen to the water. For 10 minutes, turn your phone off, everything. just sit there. Watch how you feel when you walk away. When you heard birds actually singing to each other and sitting there like, what? And I miss this. That old saying, stop and smell the roses, stop. Actually stop and smell them. He says the more he moved away from his old lifestyle, the happier he seemed to get. And his mother and people around him were also happy. In his new memoir, Bird Brother, Stotts credits the healing power of wildlife for transforming his life. An inspiring story. And now to something less savory. The head of a Mexico-based megachurch with five million followers worldwide was sentenced in a Los Angeles courtroom to over 16 years in prison for sexually abusing three girls. The head of a megachurch based in Mexico, La Luz del Mundo, has been sentenced to nearly 17 years in prison for sexually abusing young girls. Nason Joaquin Garcia is the leader and self-styled apostle of the Guadalajara-based church, which claims nearly 5 million followers worldwide. He pleaded guilty to two counts of abuse last Friday in return for prosecutors dismissing the majority of the charges he faced, including multiple charges of rape, conspiracy to engage in human trafficking, and child pornography. Judge Ronald Cohen was visibly emotional when he handed down the jail sentence in Los Angeles on Wednesday, apologizing for not being able to do more for the victims. Lawyers do what lawyers do, and at this point my hands are tied. But I further want to tell all the Jane Doe's that the world has heard you. Garcia's sentencing caps an investigation that began in 2018, leading to his arrest the following year at Los Angeles International Airport. But Garcia's accusers have decried the plea deal as too lenient. One of Garcia's alleged victims, Sochil Martin, vowed to keep fighting for justice. This is just getting started. LDM and your criminal institution and every politician, whether it's here, Colombia, Mexico, Europe, we're taking this to the federal authorities. If it's the last thing I do. Two other church associates charged with Garcia have reached separate plea deals, while a fourth person remains at large. La Luz del Mundo has publicly stood by Garcia and argued that he accepted a plea deal because he believed he could not get a fair trial. 
Under the deal, Garcia will also be registered as a sex offender for life. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. On the ice tonight, the Rangers host the Lightning in a crucial Game 5. Tampa Bay has taken control of the set with back-to-back -back wins in Games 3 and 4 to even up the series at two games apiece. But New York has won eight straight at the friendly confines of Madison Square Garden. Rangers goalie Igor Shosturkin has been especially dominant at home, not allowing more than two goals in a game for five straight contests. New York is hoping to have injured centers Ryan Strom and Philip Heatel available. Both will be game time decisions. Tampa Bay, meanwhile, will still be without center Braden Point. Point has missed eight straight games with a lower body injury. However, coach John Cooper said he could return by the end of the series. The Golden State Warriors lost Game 3 in Boston last night to fall behind 2-1 to one to the Celtics. Two-time MVP Steph Curry came up limping after diving for a loose ball late in their 116-100 loss. The league's all-time leader in three-pointers was writhing in pain after Celtics big man Al Horford appeared to roll over his left leg. Curry was seen walking gingerly after the game. He noted that the injury felt somewhat similar to what he suffered in March when he sprained his foot on a similar play that involved Marcus Smart. That injury kept Curry out for a month. While Curry is recovering, Boston's biggest star, Jason Tatum, opened up about fatherhood Tuesday. The 23-year-old is often seen spending time with his four-year-old son, Deuce, on the court before games. Tatum says he realizes he has a platform as an NBA star and thinks it's great if he can be a role model for other young fathers out there. He says the world needs more role models and more fathers present. The three-time All-Star scored 26 points and dished out a team-high nine assists in Game 3 as Boston is now two wins away from their 18th title. And in golf, the PGA Tour has announced that any tour members who participate in the Saudi-funded Live Golf League, which tees off today outside of London, will no longer be eligible for PGA Tour events, including the President's Cup. The USGA, however, has said those players can still participate in next week's U.S. Open. The PGA Tour does not run the four majors. 17 tour members or former members, as some have just recently resigned, teed off in the inaugural Live Golf event today, including Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and Sergio Garcia. The Live Golf Series features 54 whole events and purses of $25 million, which would be richer than any PGA event. In addition, top players reportedly received signing bonuses of $100 million or more, with the Daily Telegraph reporting that Johnson received $150 million. Former golf great Greg Norman has been named CEO of Live Golf. The organization is supported by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's been accused of numerous human rights violations, controls the fund. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And breaking news from the NBA. Warriors guard Steph Curry has said he will play in Game 4 of Friday, despite injuring his foot in last night's loss. Curry is NBA's all-time leader in three-pointers made. And coming up, the U.S. is looking, losing ground in its backyard, Latin America, while China has been busy making major inroads there through its checkbook. We look at how the dynamics have shifted. 
the EU Parliament has voted in favour of banning new fossil fuel cars from 2035. We look at how the decision could impact European car makers' position on the global market. That and more after the break. Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. A power shift is happening in America's backyard while Washington's attention was diverted by Ukraine and the Middle East. We look at how China has been expanding its influence in Latin America and where America's influence stands in the region. NTV's Tiffany Meyer has the latest. Latin America has traditionally been considered America's backyard, but the U.S. is losing ground there, while China has been advancing through trade and investment. The U.S. remains Latin America's top trading partner. But if Mexico gets excluded from the picture, then China will have already replaced the U.S. as the top partner to the rest of the region. That's according to a Reuters analysis of U.N. trade data. Excluding Mexico, two-way trade between China and Latin America hit nearly $250 billion last year. In comparison, the region's trade volume with the U.S. stands at just under $175 billion. America is able to keep its top Latin America trading partner status because of Mexico. The two signed a free trade deal in the 90s, and trade volume between the two overshadows Washington's commerce with the rest of Latin America. Last year, Mexico's trade flows with America stood at over $600 billion. Mexico's trade with China reached around $110 billion. In the meantime, China has been promoting its major investment project in Latin America, the Belt and Road Initiative though critics call it Beijing's debt trap diplomacy. Under it, the regime offers billions of dollars in loans to developing countries, earmarked for building up their infrastructure. But when countries fail to pay back the money, the regime then takes control of their strategic assets, like ports that could prove useful for military purposes. Over 20 Latin America and Caribbean nations have signed up for China's Belt and Road Initiative. The Biden administration has sent aides to Latin America in an attempt to convince them that the U.S. is a more reliable and transparent business partner. But a U.S. official told Reuters that Washington is facing a tough challenge there. The official said as long as China is ready to put its cash on the table, the U.S. seems to be fighting a losing battle. The official spoke on the condition of anonymity. The Summit of the Americas is currently underway in Los Angeles. The city is home to the largest Latino community in the U.S. President Biden is expected to introduce a new economic agenda for the region while he's there. Though administration officials say it will not include new trade agreements. 
The new agenda aims to mobilize investments, create clean energy jobs and strengthen supply chains. Any new trade deals could face domestic pushback. Biden promised American voters before that he would not sign any new deals until he's made major investments at home. And staying in China, an open letter signed by dozens of Chinese entrepreneurs and investors. It calls for political reform in China and lists a number of fundamental social changes. Let's zoom in. An anonymous open letter is circulating in China, stirring up debate. The letter was endorsed by dozens of entrepreneurs and investors, mainly from Shanghai. It says together they hold tens of billions of dollars of investment, but even businesses on this scale are struggling to protect themselves and survive in China's pandemic-stricken economy. They say the country's lockdown experience made them, quote, completely sober and helped them realize that the credibility of China's communist regime has already collapsed. So, facing predicted turmoil, they decided to speak up. In protest, they decided not to obey authorities' instructions to go back to normal productions post-lockdown, saying their companies will resume operations but not production. Frank Shea is a professor in business at University of South Carolina, Aiken. He explained it's hard for businesses to jumpstart production after two months under lockdown, especially because they're coping with broken supply chains. He added that the entrepreneur's strategy is in essence a strike. We see that this is essentially the start of a general strike by the industrial sector, the business sector, the workers, the private capitalists, the people from all walks of life in Shanghai. In fact, they're calling for a longer social strike. Xie said the entrepreneurs are protesting against the regime. A government cannot recklessly close down such a large city, a city of more than 20 million and so many businesses in it, all in a sudden, without any discussion and out of political reasons. On top of disobedience in business, the letter also urges for political reform. The goal? To, quote, unshackle economic development from politics. To achieve it, the letter lists a number of fundamental social changes it says should be made, including giving residents permanent rights to their land. Right now, all land in China belongs to the Communist Party. People and businesses merely purchase the right to use the land, normally for a few dozen years. That includes land with residential housing as well as commercial space. The letter also calls for removing bans and on a multi-party governance system and private media platforms. Beyond that, it pushes to eliminate the privileged social class and the hukou system. That's the equivalent of an intra-provincial passport and a tool that makes China's 800 million farmers the target of discrimination. The privileged social class refers to high-level party officials and their families, who often receive special privileges and treatment. The Shanghai industries use strikes to compel the Chinese Communist Party to carry out political reforms and force the CCP to step down from the stage of history. That is, in my opinion, a very positive approach to dismantle the CCP on the civilian level. U.S.-based news service Radio Free Asia managed to contact several of the letter's authors. They say they'll continue to promote the letter's contents, but they requested they remain anonymous for security reasons. And over to Europe. EU lawmakers are in support of an effective ban on new combustion engine cars from 2035. Some members of Parliament who pushed for the ban cited concerns over dependence on Russian fuel. 
Manufacturers will now have to adapt and go into a market where they will face tough competition. NTD's France correspondent David Vives looks at how it might impact the car industry in Europe. This might be the turning point for what the European Union calls the green transition. European Parliament lawmakers on Wednesday voted to support an effective EU ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2035. The bill is part of a raft of EU climate change policies to cut Europe's emissions over the next decade. But aside from the EU's climate agenda, the conflict in Ukraine has weighed down on the discussions. Money spent on renewables in Europe is money that stays in Europe. Money spent on fossil fuel bought in Russia is money that disappears in Putin's pockets and is then used to wage a war against his peaceful neighbors. French lawmaker Joël Melun said the Paris Agreement is an uncontrolled one-upmanship. By raising the decarbonization threshold over very short deadlines, Europe is taking citizens and businesses hostage especially now in a very dangerous period of shortages of energy sources and soaring prices. Attempts by some lawmakers to weaken the target to a 90% CO2 cut by 2035 were rejected. The vote follows an EU Commission proposal to require a 100% reduction in CO2 emission from new cars by 2035. This change was heavily impact the car industry on the continent. Some lawmakers pointed out the car industries shouldn't bear the blame. Now, uh, the only thing that uh, I would like to see more is to treat our industry as a partner, not as a criminal, which is poisoning our environment. Economist Philippe Erland says European car manufacturers will lose their position in the global market. The problem is that we will abandon the problem is that we are going to abandon completely our position by switching to electric cars. There are some who are ahead of us, especially the Americans who is Tesla, but also China. The president of a German auto industry association said that the EU parliament has taken a decision against its citizens, against the market, against innovation and modern technologies. She said that the EU decision will increase costs for consumers, as well as impact their confidence. Ellen says European cars that are famous across the world will eventually lose their appeal, and likely their buyers. It will be devastating for the European businesses, which will lose their electric car market. We can't imagine an electric Ferrari. I'm not sure. Will we dream of an electric Porsche? And in front of that, there will be very competitive Chinese models, which will be devastating for the car sector. The law is not yet final, but Wednesday's vote confirms the Parliament's position for upcoming negotiations with EU countries on the final law. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, one of the largest model railways in Europe makes its debut in Florence, Italy. It features a unique landscape that blends imagination with reality. And a research group in Spain develops a way to reuse mussel shells as ceramic. It's part of a worldwide effort to turn food waste into raw material. Stay tuned for more after this short break. A giant model railroad greets visitors in Florence. 
And even though it's a miniature model, it takes travelers through the iconic landscapes of Germany, Austria, and Italy. Clanking through tunnels, train stations, and rolling greenery, these miniature trains are taking a scenic journey. This elaborate installation was the brainchild of an Italian whose work started in 1972. The model was born from a passion my father had for cars and model cars. But then in the shop where he had gone to buy a model car, he couldn't find any cars. So the shopkeeper managed to instill in him a passion and curiosity for trains. And that's where his passion started. The model is a real work in progress. It's continuously updated. The space in which it's set mixes reality and imagination. Now it includes the contours of the Dolomites, Berlin-style architecture, and the seascapes of the Tuscan Islands. Actually, the extraordinary thing is that it doesn't represent anything. It is a big dream, and as such it captures the attention. When we close our eyes and dream, we go into another dimension and are often happy. Then we open them again and realize that we have experienced something exceptional that remains within us, but has no correspondence with reality. As the train moves between the landscapes of mountains and the sea, the alternation of lights, music, and projections simulates the change from day to night and to different seasons. We thought of two important elements that are linked to vision and listening, and we soundproofed the environment and animated the backgrounds with illustrations that became a 30-minute show that brings back this imaginative and imaginary element of the model. The model railway is thought to be one of the largest in Europe, covering more than 3,000 square feet. It's currently housed in a former cinema in Florence, just a short walk from Santa Maria Novella train station. Fascinating. Well, over a billion tons of food ends up thrown away every year worldwide. But tech gurus in Spain are finding ways to turn even inedible food waste into something useful. And TD's Andrew Thomas has those details. The key material here is mussels. These little shells are usually discarded. But a research group called 1C Circular Design Hub in Spain has developed a way to reuse the waste product. The shells have to be ground down into a fine powder and added to other components to form a paste. We as a society, we produce a lot, a lot of waste related to the ocean, like, uh, like mussels, mussel shells. So with this, we create powder, and then with this powder, we can transform it into a kind of ceramic. In 2019, more than 1 billion tons of food was thrown away across the world. That's based on data from the UN. Tech experts at 1C Circular Design Hub are trying to find ways to stop all that waste from ending up in the trash. We think waste doesn't exist. It's a lack of creativity of, of our civilization. Those are molecules that has another price and another value in different markets. So it's a kind of a different view we have to do on, on the materials now we are creating. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, Europe consumes more than 600,000 tons of mussels a year. That's a lot of shells that end up in landfill. The Barcelona-based group believes this is one way of reusing that byproduct and says it could help companies save money as production costs rise. On the price on the raw materials, it grow up from 26% to 300% this year. So that means that it's much more expensive to buy raw materials. We can find these raw materials in the, in the waste we create in the society. You know? So there's no waste, as we told, it's like just materials. The hub showcased its ideas at the Food for Future Food Technology Expo in Bilbao. 
It also has plans for reusing plastic packaging, discarded eggshells, and even peach pits. The UN wants to cut food waste in half by 2030. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And with innovation, it seems anything's possible. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.